Hello and welcome to High Pot Enthuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the Maths and Physical Sciences faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I am completely unqualified to be here. I press the buttons, but I'm very enthusiastic. With me, as always, from MAPS is my excellent co-host, the much more qualified Sophie Lane. Our guest today is mathematician extraordinaire, Raphael Prieto Curiel. Welcome, Raphael. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much, Laura, and good afternoon to you and to all of your audience. Oh, yes, all of them. <laughs> just my mum. <laughs> uh, so, Raphael, could you start by telling us about your research focus? For sure. Um, so, uh, first things first is that I'm from Mexico and I grew up there. I lived there for 20-something years. And after graduating from mathematics in Mexico, I wasn't sure what would I do and where is my ideal job. But I found a job in the police in Mexico. And working for the police in Mexico was super exciting, as you can imagine, because like there's crime on the police and it's Mexico City, which is like 22 million people. And with that amount of people, there's also that amount of police officers. So it was quite hectic and quite chaotic. But at the same time, maths is everywhere. So maths is also in the police department. So questions such as, do we have enough police? Or where should we put the next police officer? For me, they are based on maths, and they are maths questions, which if we have the right data, then we can try to answer. Uh, it was super exciting working there, and I did it for five years. And then I thought a uh, master's in statistics might m help me become a better uh, crime analyst. And so I came here to UCL to do a master in statistics. I was really pleased with the masters, but then I thought I want to do more and I want to try and solve some other questions which I have. Uh, and so I started doing research, formal research, as a mathematician. So that's a PhD in mathematics for the past four years. I finished just last week my PhD. And yeah, like, you, I, I think uh, along your life you come across with these sort of questions which they don't actually have an answer. So it's something to think about and you can turn the question upside down, have it for years and years, and then after years of thinking of that same question, I think I don't have an answer. And perhaps the question is, can we have a city with zero crimes? Or... Do we need to hire more police officers in some cities such as London? Is actually hiring more police officers going to reduce crime? And I can tell you I don't know the answer. <laughs> it's quite tricky and it's quite difficult. And evidence shows some things. And there's models and there's data and there's econometrics. And like it's a challenging question. And that's why I think it requires research and... Not only mathematicians, of course. It requires many sciences working together for questions such as that. Uh, crime scientists, for sure. But also politicians, urban planners, uh, social scientists, psychologists. Because really, deep down, why do we have crime? Uh, if a city has more crime, is it because there are more criminals? 
or the same number of criminals act more frequently because the way to solve those two scenarios would be completely different. If, say, Mexico City has more crime now, is it because we are more criminal? Are we more criminal in our genetics or something? Maybe the weather makes us more criminal? But, uh, of course, it's not, or I want to believe that it's not. And so it, it is because there's factors and reasons, and everybody wants to think of a model, but it's actually a research project, a full institution, decades of work and b millions of uh, data points, research questions from thousands of researchers thinking of that question. Can we actually reduce crime? And I mean, math shows some results. At least we are moving somewhere. You're basically like a math superhero. <laughs> well, thank you. This is kind of like, you know, keeping us safe with the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fantastic, thank you. <laughs> so you said that you rarely find answers, like most of these questions you ask don't have an answer. Um, so do you find like parts of an answer? Like what's something that you do find? The, um, I think maybe the, the challenge is that while doing research, I was very excited about trying to find this answer. And when you find one, I always say that finding an answer means opening two new questions. So I finished my PhD with more questions than answers. But at the same time, yes, there is the satisfaction of saying, I know why that works. I know what parts of it are moving. I know what's the data behind it and how we could actually try and model it with maths, solve it with social science, implement it with the police, try to design a better policy and put, put those four parts together. I think at the end of my PhD, I can say I get at least an insight on that. It's a whole world, as you can imagine, the four parts, the data, the modeling, the policy design or working with the police hand to hand. And for those four, I think I do have the satisfaction of saying, I know some answers. Um, yes, we can put uh, police in a location and that will reduce the crime, at least in that location. Uh, if we send a police officer faster to emergencies, then we are creating a safer environment to everyone. Yes, we need to call emergency numbers, such as the uh, 222 inside UCL, the 112 in the European Union, or 911, as most of the world that has now an emergency number. And triple zero in Australia. What? Triple zero in Australia. That's that's uh, a new one. I wasn't aware of that. Thank you. Teaching <laughs> one for teaching. your repertoire. Yeah, yeah, teaching the doctor. <laughs> and so, yeah, like th there are answers that you get collect, uh, they get to collect throughout the research project. Um, sometimes um, perhaps the interesting part is that you have a question in your mind and you discover more questions which are sometimes even just as challenging and even more interesting to answer. So why crime happens is maybe too broad, too difficult, and maybe it doesn't even actually help reducing crime. But some parts such as who actually is committing the crime or how many victims do we have in a city and how many criminals do we have in a city 
help us understand the crime phenomenon. So, so do you kind of focus on crime in general or will you look at one area, for example, so you can look at a city and say, well, that city has a higher than average rate of carjackings, for example. Why might that be? Actually, um, I think the focus on one crime or one specific uh, region or type of crime would perhaps be more the approach of my crime scientist uh, colleagues, but I am a mathematician. So in theory, in mathematics, you just say I change the access from crimes to another thing, such as road accidents, and the model should work. And so that's how a mathematician tries to think of uh, different scenarios. Or instead of number of crimes, let's count the number of terrorist attacks that London suffers. So you try to think of a broad scenario instead of the more specific one. So um, what what else can you apply your model to then? Uh, so I actually from the police, m- one of my biggest questions was related to fear of crime or fear of terrorism or opinions. Um, because when you look at the data of number of crimes against fear of crime, fear of crime is this idea that why we lock the cars and lock the doors and we are concerned and we uh, look at the window and we feel insecure and we avoid walking in the streets at night and so on. We avoid certain places. is because of fear of crime. And then when you look at crime and fear of crime, they actually are close to not being related. So it seems that some regions have more crime and they are perceived as being insecure and some regions have less crime and they are perceived as being super insecure. Even if you look at this in time, a city might increase the number of crimes whilst being perceived more and more secure. And that is challenging because you would expect that more crimes means more fear and less crimes means less fear. But that is not what we observe. And so I wanted to develop a mathematical model for the fear of crime which takes into account the simplest possible things. So something that mathematicians we tend to do is try to go to the least possible minimal explanation that works, as opposed to many other sciences that is considering, for instance, for the model of fear of crime, age, gender, region, location, type of crime, and so on. Me as a mathematician, I only consider two or three things. A person regardless of age, gender, or other aspects of the person, whether they have suffered a crime and their history. So what happened to the person yesterday? According to this model, which is a mathematical model, we could show that fear of crime will happen in a city and is actually not related to crime. So I could mathematically prove to the person that in a city such as London, the number of crimes could be reduced and the fear of crime could remain the same. Wow. I wonder why that is. Mm. I have a question. So that was an example of when what the model showed was not what you expected. Um, So what I'm wondering is, like, did your background in the police, did that, like, did you have any sort of expectations, like preconceptions that you then found were false like 
when you were doing your research? Sure. Uh, I would expect uh, in terms of fear of crime that more crime means more fear, but also that it depends more on social aspects and the relation between them. And more and more that, let's suppose I'm the mayor of a city, uh, it's difficult to control the fear of crime, but maybe with more police we can reduce the number of crimes. So being the mayor of a city, as you are concerned about fear of crime, then you do everything you can to reduce the number of crimes, thinking that it will work for your city. But with mathematics, I could show that actually it might get worse. You might actually create more fear. And if you move crime from where it usually happens to other regions of the world or other regions of the city, then actually fear of crime might increase. Just because you're moving crime to other places with other victims, you're making crime more visible, then actually fear of crime might, might be increased. This is, it's quite interesting, actually. It brings me on to my point about, are there any, like, data sets or kind of the findings of your, your models that you would like people to be aware of? So, for example, you know, that we're on a really even keel for crime at the moment in London, so you don't necessarily need to be scared. Uh, there is, for instance, the level of development in the world. And there is two people that I really admire in this sense. Hans Rosling, he, he was a scientist that showed data. And he was just about the data. And he, back like 10 years ago, was able to show in a very beautiful and very smooth way. This is 120,000 data points or data numbers showing you how has the world evolved in the past 100 years. And why is that important? Because when you ask people, is the world getting better? Sometimes the perception is that it's not, and that we are living in a more fearful way and, and the, that we should be concerned about our peers, our neighbors, and about all these diseases and all about uh, access to health and access to opportunity. But then what uh, Hans Rosling shows is that, well, Actually, 2017 was the best year that the humanity has ever experienced in terms of access to health, education, violence, uh, human rights, uh, women representation in the Congresses. Like, we are actually getting better. And the second is Max Rosser from the University of Oxford. He has a project called Our World in Data. And also they show, actually, it is, it is a much better position than the one we're living now than 10 years ago or 30 years ago or even 100 years ago. Sometimes what happens is that we just forget about it. So we tend to be quite uh, specific on our time interval. And so we forget that, for instance, road accidents in London just 13 years ago, it was twice as likely as it is now to die because of a road accident. The city of London has been quite severely decreasing the number of crimes, uh, sorry, the number of road accidents. And so actually London is quite a safe city for pedestrians, for cyclists, and for car users. And yet it seems like there is this concern of road accidents and we need to 
So that's that's a bit the the challenge. Like there is on the one side reality and what is actually happening, and on the other side there is opinions, ideas, fake news, uh, perceptions, and the perceptions are quite often wrong. That's really interesting. Good news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what questions do you want to answer next? Like what's your next big next big thing? Oof. Um so um I think there are many open questions which either I encountered throughout my PhD or that I had already in mind. Um why are we observing the rise of extreme opinions? Uh, both as political spectrum. So, for instance, in France, there was the extreme right party that got a bit more powerful in the past elections. But this uh, rise of extreme opinions seems to be the universal factor now. It's happening in Italy, it happened in the US, it happens sometimes here in the UK too. But why do they have to emerge? And not only that, I think sometimes you observe the population and leadership emerges. Some some people like to blame it on the leader itself. So this person was the person that... But I actually think it's a result of society. So since the society has this perception, is following into this scenario, they have fear for, I don't know, the migrants or the outsiders or they have these patriotistic feelings. It just requires one person to say, hey, guess what? I have an answer and we need to build a wall. Well, yeah, of, of course, it, it for you is is the leader that emerges, uh, uh, that says that phrase. But it's not one person thinking that way. It's millions of people thinking we need to do something and what are we going to do? So perhaps the question for me would be, why do they emerge? What can we do about them? Because I think it's a bit scary, like, if we see the history of humanity in the past just 100 years, we see that extreme opinions might actually be quite popular because they get uh, the public opinion in favor. But they might also be quite challenging with the truth. They might not ref reflect what the world is observing, and just based on misconceptions, then they can actually drive these perceptions into more votes, more seats in the Congress, or more popular. Secondly, I think uh, in terms of cities, so something I encountered throughout my PhD is the difference between cities. And the science of cities, I think, is a fantastic sort of science because it, it's... So, for, for example, let's consider what's the difference between a super large city say London, Paris, New York, or Mexico City, or Lagos in Nigeria, or um, uh, Karachi in Pakistan. And when you consider those large cities, you measure something such as the number of petrol stations, and then you consider the number of petrol stations per 100,000 people. So it's a per capita sort of idea. And then something super interesting is that you compare this on the large cities such as Karachi or London or Paris and you compare it with the smaller cities and it's not the same. So in a smaller city you actually need 
more petrol stations per 100,000 people. Because in a large city, if you think about it, on a large city, you go to a petrol station and then you queue. And you queue and I queue a bit. So we share resources. And because we share resources, we need a bit less petrol stations. But not only that, petrol stations, that's the easy one. We need less electric cables. We need less road surface. But in the large cities, we tend to walk faster, talk faster, have more friends, have more friends on Facebook, have more Twitter followers. We have more patents. We have more crime. We have more diseases. We have more AIDS. So, so and on. It seems like the large cities are very different to the actual small cities. So different that uh, let's look at a map of how did the people vote in United States in the 2016 elections. All of the large cities voted for one candidate. The rest of the country voted for another candidate. Who voted to remain or who voted Brexit in the UK? You can see the large cities voting in one direction and the small cities voting in the other direction. Who voted for Marine Le Pen in France? And in France, again, you find quite clearly on the map Lyon, Paris, Marseille, and the rest of the country. So it actually seems like this divide between the large cities and the smaller cities is one of the challenges of the 21st century, particularly because we would consider that, oh, now most of the world is living in a large city. Yeah, and everybody, now most of the world is living in a city. But that is the tricky part. Living in a city does not mean a large city. Actually, less than 10% of the world lives in a large city. Most of the world lives in a secondary city. In a city with 100,000 people, half a million people, which has one aspect such as more um, spaces for relaxation. They have to pay less rent because, you know, rent here in London is super expensive and I'm, I'm paying millions for one tiny room and I live <laughs> above by another person and another person. But that is a symptom of a large city. And it's the same in Mexico City. It's super expensive to pay rent in Mexico City and in Paris and in New York because those are the large cities. So it seems like this divide between the large city people and the small city people is going to be maybe one of the drivers of the 21st century. Well, and so I suppose with, with that, you are just opening up a whole lot more questions, really, aren't you? Like, why does that divide happen? Is it purely a basis for population or is it to do with geographic location or is it to do with what the people do in the city so how will you answer that or will you try and partner with other people to answer that it, it, as you can see it's a whole universe there for questions you got your work cut out for you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to Raphael in like 20 years time it solved it all yeah <laughs> oh it's, re wish. it's very refreshing I think especially now when everything is so polarized and everything is so uh, everyone's everyone's got an opinion and everyone's opinion is given equal weight, which is obviously really good. But sometimes some things are just like true or false. And I think a lot of the times like, you know, like with that, you know, a lot of people would say like, oh, the people that voted with this were all these kinds of people. And people would go, no, they weren't. They were these kinds of people. And I think when you actually can actually look at the numbers and find out, well, actually, I can tell you who they were. 
like I think that's really interesting and really deeply refreshing <laughs> uh, compared to like a lot of what you hear at the moment. The numbers don't lie. No. Exactly right. And when you when you see the data, is exactly getting an idea of this is why things are happening. So of course, when you hear the speech of the political results in any country, it can be Italy, France, uh, the US, or the UK. When you hear the speech being uh, taking place in the large city, of course you can tell that they are not comfortable with the result if it wasn't the winner of their, or they are celebrating because uh, Macron is now our president. But I think it's just a matter of actually understanding that, well, because you're not living in that situation, because you're not in a very small city in which most of the chances is that you will have to move away from your city to study a degree. So in the US, migration between cities is more frequently because um, they have to go to university and many students, they actually go to another city for studying. However, in the rest of the world, it's not that frequent to have to go to another city to study abroad. But then if you live in a small city, you have to, and there is not an option for you. But if you were in London, there are far too many fantastic universities here in this city. and there well, There's one in particular I can think <laughs> of. Not sure Our what favorite. that is. <laughs> Actually, the rest are not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Just a joke. But, yeah, like, the opportunities that are there for you are not the same. Furthermore, if you, let's say, you study finance, then are you going to live in a small city or is New York calling you? Or Canary Wharf is calling you? And this, I think, is one of those challenges that we will be facing more and more recurrently because literally there is only a few poles of attraction for research, finance, banking, and so on and so forth. Is it is it everything changing, I think, in the way that the world essentially is becoming smaller with communication becoming more and more easy between, you know, I can now get a direct flight to Perth, Western Australia in <laughs> 17 hours. That was unheard of kind of, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Is is that kind of communication boost affecting the way that your modelling sees results? That, that's actually quite an interesting uh, question. Oh, great. Because Thanks. For instance, <laughs> Good job, yeah, no, no, uh, That's precisely the point. I think you get the, the most challenging questions when you actually talk to people that are not mathematicians. <laughs> Who are idiots. <laughs> no, not at all. I promise you, I, I get the opposite uh, perception. Like, the valuable questions are those asked by the outside. Um... For instance, in terms of flying, according to my numbers, which are not official, so I'm not the source of information <laughs> in this point, in one year, humanity makes commercial traveling around 3.5 billion trips. And we are like 7 billion people. So m sort of half of the population makes a yearly trip in a plane. But is it half of the population? I don't think so. And what, what happens is the following. If you got a plane, chances are that you are coming back to the place where you took it. Chances are that you took that plane for business and therefore you do it quite frequently. 
or that you are have a connecting flight, so you're going on a round trip around the south in Latin America, and so you have a plane to Colombia and then to Buenos Aires and so on. So actually, when you look at a hundred people, it's not like half of them took a plane last year and half of them they didn't. I would say rather is five percent of the world took a plane, but they just took many flights along the year. And then 95% of the world did not take a plane last year because they are so far away from this universe, so far away from travel, business, or leisure, traveling on a plane. Like, that is just a handful of the people. But we can model it. If you give me the data for commercial planes uh, in the world, we can actually divide the profile of the people and maybe detect that there is the more frequent flyer that person who flies, I don't know, 10, 12 years, 12 times in a year, and they, I have never actually seen a plane. And that, I think, is quite a divide between the two populations. So it's not one trip per two people, as, as maybe the original data shows. And that's, that's I think, the, the idea of a mathematical model, that just by looking at commercial flights, it's just a handful of people that we will need to model, and for the rest, we already know the answer. Yeah. Fli- that's, I, th- I like that, because flights are something that kind of I, ma- I get vaguely anxious about sometimes, because we don't know if the resources we need to fly as much as we do are going to be around forever, and I think it's really useful to look at who's doing all the flying, and if, you know, at some point the resources we need don't become available, like, what happens if suddenly the amount of flights we can take in a year halves? Like, who does that affect? Like, is it, like, families going on holidays? Or is it, like, do people have to start Skype meeting all the time and then that just solves the whole problem? Like, I think it's a really interesting thing to look at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that was all really, really interesting and I'm kind of loath to take it away to round everything up. But we do have one more question that we, we ask everybody, Raphael, and is that is, who is your maths hero? or Who is the person that inspires you to think the way that you do? Um, thank you very much, Laura and Sophie, for having me here. Uh, it's a tricky question, so I need to answer my three heroes, if that's okay. <laughs> that's all right, I give you permission. Uh, first, I think, is Simone Denise Poisson. So then the famous name there would be Poisson. And he's a French mathematician from like 17th uh, something till the 18th something. And he was one of those people that did almost everything. So fluid dynamics, probability and so on. But he also took data from wrongful convictions and developed a probability distribution and then a whole probability model and he showed that wrongful convictions, they are not happening randomly. Thanks to that, we have the Poisson distribution. And his name is in the Eiffel Tower, just as a record of this is one of the great uh, scientists of the world. Then I think the second would be Hannah Fry. I think she is fantastic in what she's doing with promoting mathematics and being a female role leader, role, leader, role model for um, mathematicians around the world. Like she is giving it and she is showing that there are no boundaries in terms of gender and that if we have boundaries, we need to break them already. And so I think she's fantastic. And every time I see her on the BBC, 
It's like Gohana, this is a great mathematician. And thirdly, I would say Naira Chamberlain. He was named uh, the fifth most black, uh, the fifth most influential black people in the UK. He is the best ever mathematician and super influential. He came once to UCL last year, and thanks to him, we are celebrating Black Mathematician Month. And he repeated one phrase once and another and another time, telling us, you don't need anyone's permission to be a great mathematician. And that, I think, summarized his, his struggle with saying, I'm a black person, and like I live in a world that almost no one is actually black. So I think those would be my three heroes. Hannah for breaking a gender barrier. Naira for breaking a racial barrier here in the UK and in the world. And Passon just because he developed some probability theory. Well, they are all excellent heroes and a very nice note to end up on. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Laura, and thank you, Sophie.